listeners, and welcome back to the sixth TFA Daily World Cup podcast of our World Cup series. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we've another exciting episode for you all today. We've been treated to some amazing games over the past 24 hours. Spain managed to thrash Costa Rica 7-0 in arguably the most dominant World Cup display since Germany's mauling of Brazil in 2014. Then, Canada and Belgium played out a thrilling match full of refereeing controversy and missed chances to round off the Wednesday fixtures. First up on Thursday, we had Switzerland edging out a fiery Cameroon by one goal to nil, which was preceded by an intense tactical battle between Uruguay and South Korea. There's lots to get into in this episode, and I'm joined by TFA analyst David Estill as we review the tactics from each of the four matches in yet another action-packed episode. So without further ado, let's dive right into the analysis. David, welcome back on the podcast. That's great. Thanks for having me. How have you enjoyed the games over the last 24 hours since we last recorded? Yeah, there have been some some good results, some interesting results. Um, lots of good performances and some interesting performances, shall mm-hmm. we say, which I'm sure we'll get into. And the fourth one is a not-so-good performance from Costa Rica. There's a lot of games to get into, so we'll dive straight into this. Spain 7, Costa Rica 0. Um, I looked at the Spanish lineup and I thought, Rodri at centre centre half I thought that was a confusing he's played there before but I thought it was an interesting at least uh, you know line up by Luis Enrique and then um, what preceded was probably I'd argue the most dominant display at a World Cup since Brazil uh, or Germany Brazil 2014 what we'll talk about Spain force because they were incredible and I mean in particular the Barcelona duo of Pedri and Gavi in midfield wow they they are talented. Pedri was incredible. Mm-hmm. Like it just in and around the box, he's just amazing. And then Gavi as well. He's still only, I think, 18 now. It's it's just they're scintillating to watch. Talk to me about Spain's performance then. Yeah, well, I, I looked at their life and thought something similar, but then I think what they were trying to do is they knew that Costa Rica would not be the most attacking side. Um, so I think what they were trying to do is by playing a midfielder at centre-back, they knew Rodri would instinctively go forwards and playing in a slightly more holding midfield role anyway. But I think that because they knew he was going to do that, that then meant that you could have Gavi, Pedro, uh, Busquets as well, pushing forwards, which meant that actually in the final third, they then created even more numbers. Um, and that really was, I think, what helped them to, to win the game. And obviously they were really helped by, by Costa Rica frankly being a bit of a shambles mm-hmm. but I think it was the fact they had so many numbers uh, in the final third which meant they were able to move the ball around create triangles um, you know really play free-flowing football um, and you know that that helped them to just continue to keep the pressure on keep the foot on on the on the, uh, on the pedal and yeah so, so I think it was a bit of a strange lineup but actually I think when you look at it that's maybe what they were looking for. They knew they would have that space. They knew to have the time. They didn't need to, to focus so much on defending. They could just effectively concentrate on attacking because they knew that's what the game was going to be like because that's, you know, Costa Rica, obviously, are not the most attacking side. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they they obviously, got, you know, Costa Rica obviously came into this one knowing that they're not going to really have a chance of, of progressing. So Spain obviously thought, you know, this is an opportunity for us to go and try some attacking tactics out, try some combinations, get players working together, get a feel for the tournament. And it really worked for them. Yeah, when we did the preview a few weeks ago, previewing the entire tournament for the magazine, I spoke about how I analysed the the playoff between Costa Rica and New Zealand. It must have been back in the summer, I believe. Costa Rica were really good, I thought, that day. 
Um, I think what helped them though was that New Zealand were very robust in terms of their attacking play. They were very direct. I mean, Chris Wood was up front, and I suppose when when Chris Wood is your number nine, you can only really play one kind of way. But they were really tactically flexible. They changed formation, I think, three or four times, and eventually they did beat New Zealand and they progressed to the World Cup. So I thought today Spain would have it a lot more difficult to break them down. And it, it just, that I mean, that theory went way out the window because Spain weren't robust or direct with their play. They were very much on the deck, played through the towards. I mean, I think they, they there was over a thousand passes played by them, which is just mind-boggling. Um, and especially the fourth goal, Danny almost torn was unbelievable and the finish I mean Danny almost not a, a, a great player I think it's fair to say he's not world class he's a good player very flexible mm, yeah. Luis Enrique clearly likes him but yeah I, I was kind of shell-shocked by Costa Rica's performance talk to me about them then, and, and, and what went wrong from a from a tactical point of view I know they set up in a 4-4-2 low block but that doesn't really necessarily mean they're going to be good defensively why was it such a shambles I, I just think they had the wrong attitude. I mean, you come to the World Cup, basically you've got three three matches to make your mark. First game is always tight because you're trying to get into it, as I said, like with Spain, you're trying to get a feel for the atmosphere and, and what's going to happen. But you've got to go out and just have a go. Um, you know, we'll look at Canada last night, shortly, I'm sure. But they did. They went and had a go. Costa Rica didn't. They sat back. They, they focused on defending. They allowed Spain to come on to them. And, you know, at half time, that was their opportunity to make a change, a bit like with Japan. That was their chance to say, do you know what? We've been a bit defensive. We'll go and have a go and see if we can put some pressure on. They didn't do that. The, the change at half time, I think, was a centre back that came on, which showed that they were just, all they were doing was focusing, focusing on defending. So for me, you could look at tactics, you know, the 4-4-2 low block and everything like that. It's just the attitude, just the, the tactical attitude of it just didn't quite work. And all it did was invite Spain to put the pressure on and keep moving the ball around. And we saw the result of that. So that that for me was where it fundamentally went wrong for Costa Rica. Yeah, and I mean, the, the, when you do defend that deep, and again, it, it's completely understandable against that Spain team. They have some serious quality in the midfield and the forward line especially. Well, you've got to close the space between the lines. Spain found it so easy to play in those areas to their advancement fields or to Danny Almo when he dropped deep or Morata when he came on. They were just playing into those spaces. I mean, the fourth goal came from that. I think it was Pedri lofted the ball in. The fact that he was able to receive the ball in between their midfield and back line, torn, dink it over the, the defenders into Almo, who could then score, was just unbelievable. You cannot afford to give teams like Spain that much room. And again, as I said to you, they did the same against New Zealand, but New Zealand weren't trying to play between the lines. They were trying to play out wide, put crosses in, or go long direct to Chris Wood. And it was a complete shambles. I checked the the odds last night, and I think Spain were, or sorry, Costa Rica were two hundred to one to qualify out of the the group phase, which is um, probably the worst bet I think you could you could ever make because they're minus seven goal difference now. If they somehow get a point, a point and a win, and it comes down to goal difference. There's just no hope. They'll have to, they'll have to beat Germany and they'll have to beat Japan. And I mean, I mean it's, you know. it's, yeah, I mean, it's worth mentioning, Costa Rica didn't have a single shot on goal. Yeah. Even Qatar had a couple of shots on goal and no one's expecting Qatar to win a match. 
Costa Rica have got some good players. You know, Joel Campbell has yeah. shown a part of his career. He's got talent. Brian Ruiz used to play for Fulham. Yeah. He always had some talent. Um, you know, there are players that popped up all over the place. People are expecting him to have a go, but no, no shots on target, no corners, mm-hmm. and well, no shots full stop. You know, that that really shows it it was just from start to finish, it was not the Costa Rica that we expected to turn up. Yeah. And just touching on the game quickly before we move on. Spain scored six open play goals, and there's a tweet going out. Uh, it's already on LinkedIn. I think it's going out tomorrow that I've put out of our, our wonderful uh, graphics that we put out. Spain scored six open play goals from 2.26 XG, which is just so efficient. I mean, like, I, I can't actually fathom how, how incredible that is. They overperformed by almost four, but it was three and a half XG, 3.8 XG. It's just unbelievable. So, full credit to Luis Enrique's side. So they, I mean, We'll, we'll see. We'll see against Germany before I start making predictions that they're going to win the yeah, World Cup. Yeah, I think it's, it's probably a bit too soon to start. Yeah. I mean, lots of people saying, you know, can we start saying they're going to be serious <laughs> contenders? Well, yes, but let's not get too carried away. They yeah. have still got to play Germany. That will be a tougher, tougher match. Although based on how Germany played yesterday, we'll see. But yeah. certainly in terms of quality on the pitch, it will be tougher. So we'll we'll see how they get on before we start making too many yeah. predictions. I think it's probably the right thing to do. Yeah, we'll move on now to. A team that were ranked number one in the world for just so, so long and have underperformed, I want to say, at, at tournaments under Roberto Martinez and again last night. They really got out of jail. And it, this isn't any new analysis we're providing. The manager himself said it. Kevin De Bruyne himself said it. Michi Bachiwai also said it in his uh, post-match interviews. They all said they were very lucky to get away with a point. You put a tweet out, though, that I did agree with, that if Canada don't get a point here at least it'll be their own fault looking at the xgs that's it's ridiculous i mean i think they had nearly three xg and they didn't score a single goal they only had two shots on target also from their 20 which is woeful i mean 18 shots were off target talk to me first of all about how they played in the first and, and middle tour of the pitch before we get on to the the calamity in the final tour because they were really good in that you did the analysis for the game of course last night did, which is yeah. an excellent article that went out this morning for the listeners check that out but yeah they, I mean especially with their pressing and their, their build up their, how they played in the middle tour it was excellent so speak to me about that first yeah so we'll, we'll start at the back so they had they basically built from the back so you had the, the back three of Kamal Miller um Stephen Vittoria and Alistair Johnston, all three of whom were absolutely exceptional last night. Um, I mean, Kamal Miller, the number of times he threw himself on the ground to block a shot. Stephen Vittoria, absolute rock at the back. And uh, and Alistair Johnston didn't shy away from a tackle, kept tracking back, kept working hard. All three of them were brilliant. But because you had those three, it meant that basically... Um, they could remain compact at the back. So they weren't spreading out. They were staying close to each other. That meant that when Belgium got forwards, there were no gaps for Kevin De Bruyne or Eden Hazard, whoever, to play through. So they were constantly starving whoever was making the run in behind on the occasions that they did mm-hmm. um, of possession. It meant they couldn't create chances in Belgium, that is. So that, you know, defensively, that's that was a real, really big positive for Canada. Um, and then in, in midfield, looking at the positives, Stephen, I'm going to probably pronounce this wrong, used to used to quit Kiao or something like that. Used Correct. to Kiao. Uh, yeah. So, so he was probably the most effective player on the pitch mm-hmm. for, for Canada because whenever he got the ball, he was constantly looking forwards or looking around the pitch, looking for, for teammates. Um, and Canada employed a, a, a tactical style of play that basically they 
they only took one or two touches on the ball. So it was constantly moving around the pitch and looking and, you know, the ball was never kept in one place for that long, which meant it's very hard for Belgium to isolate individual players. And Eustachio was was really, really important to that because whenever he got the ball, like I said, he was constantly looking forwards, trying to, to send the ball into runners. Um, he was, you know, really instrumental and I was really impressed with him last night. So that those are the positives. Obviously, the negative side of it is they were playing a bit of a high back line, which essentially meant that once Belgium worked out that they were playing with a high back line, they noticed there was a whole half of the pitch that they could they could yeah. aim for. And quite frankly, they had the freedom of Qatar to attack into at times, which was where the goal came from. And I think when um, you have when you have guys like Alvarado Vertonghen, especially Alvarado, who has a wonderful passing yeah. range, always has, and you know when you. And it's not even just leaving space at the back. If you're going to do that, someone you need to communicate with your central defenders. Someone has to go with Michi Pachuai. You can't let them have a free run down the middle of both of yeah. you. Yeah, and of course, that's where the goal came from. It was a lapse of, it was a serious lapse of concentration from the defenders. Unfortunately, I mean, the goal could have been avoided. Yeah, absolutely. And and like you know, had they just made that small adjustment and Batshuayi hadn't scored, Canada would have probably got a point out of that, and they would have deserved that at the very least. So, yeah, there were lots of positives. There's also a negative, um, but they'll learn. You know, it's the first tournament in 36 years, first World Cup finals in 36 years. Mm-hmm. So, they're, you know, they're still getting used to the atmosphere again. It was a really good performance from them. Um, we'll come on to the attack in a minute, but certainly overall, the overall picture from them was really good. And there's a lot of positives. There's certainly things they can build on now. Well, we will move on, though, to the attack. Um, it was... It was painful to watch at times, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to them because I understand they don't have world-class talent, although they do have Jonathan David, who's apart from Neymar, I think, and uh, Mbappe, is the tour top goal scorer in Ligue 1 at the minute with Lille. He's having an incredible season. I mean, there's probably nothing we can add new about the penalty because it mind-boggles me that, you know, David didn't take the penalty and that Alfonso Davies did, considering his record. But in terms of how they played in the final third, I mean, my God, the, the number of chances they missed was, was, was blasphemous. Yeah, and it wasn't even like they were trying to be too complicated. It was mm. just crosses were going in and they were missing the target and there was some shocking misses. Um, you know, Jonathan David heading wide, um, Junior Hoyler had a couple of chances, but it was it was things like they were just trying to move the ball onto their favourite foot. Well, mm-hmm. you haven't got that time, not against Belgium, well, not against anyone, but particularly not yeah. against Belgium without a viral baton. And you haven't got that time. So that's something they will learn. Um, you, you know, you get into those areas, you just have to take the shot, whichever foot it's on. Um, so that that was one thing that that went wrong. But yeah, it was just it was just the number of crosses that went in, just the lack of quality, lack of focus. Um, you know, sometimes they had too much time and, and there was one opportunity, which I think I, I put in the analysis, where basically Richie Laria uh, pulled the ball back into a nice area. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tejon Buchanan had time to control the ball, pick a spot, went for it, just instead he went for it first time, skied it over the bar. It, little things like that, just lack of quality, lack of focus, lack of detail, if you like. Um, I mean, there's not much more that can be said. I mean, you could break it down really tactically, but in, it just came down to players not having that finishing ability. They, they didn't yeah. pack the shooting boots. That's probably a good way of putting it. Yeah, and Belgium did. Mitchell Petrovoy scored a, a really nice goal. I don't mean to take credit away from Belgium. The ball over the top was wonderful. The it was a brilliant was, goal, yeah. Yeah, it really was. The finish was excellent. Um, overall, though, Belgium were... 
really lack luster. And again, as we, I said at the start of the segment, they that they admitted it themselves. Kevin De Bruyne got man in a match for for what? I, I, I couldn't tell you. Um, he had really low touches on the pitch. He, he created little to nothing. Uh, and they just looked really disjointed at times. And even towards the last 20 minutes, Canada piling pressure on and pressure on it's just they 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 weren't winning any second balls Canada just seemed to never lose energy what, what they lacked in final tour product they 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 had plenty of energy uh, and Belgium just couldn't cope with it they got out there with three points which is massive I wouldn't write Canada off yet though because I think from watching Croatia and from watching Morocco they can get six points there absolutely they can absolutely um I mean, they will have they will have seen what Morocco did by mm. sort of surrounding and cutting off individual yeah. Croatia players, and they will know that with their quick passing and their ability to move ball around, they're very capable of doing that too. So, yeah, I absolutely think you know Croatia were there for the taking. I'd even say Morocco were there for the taking because again, if you take Ziyech out of the game, if you take uh, you know Hakimi out of the game, mm. uh, Masrawi if he plays, you know those key players yesterday. If you take those out of the game, I thought Morocco actually lacked a little bit of quality so again you know that's three points for the taking if Canada can get their shooting boots uh you know ordered and and put on the right feet because that that really was all that was missing as we said so and I know we say this almost about every group so far but it is very much an open group Belgium again as I said we're not great and they can easily drop points against Croatia or Morocco easily and Canada can well if they they manage to put the ball in the neck and take some points off Croatia and Morocco too. But we'll move on now to Switzerland and Cameroon. This was the early game today as we're recording. It was at 10am UK time. Uh, I did the preview for Cameroon for the TFA magazine. And I, I remember saying in the preview podcast that it's very difficult to gauge how good Cameroon are based on the quality of opposition they've played. So a couple of the matches I watched were like Burundi. I think they won 1-0 where it really wasn't... You, 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 I mean... From the teams they're going to play, you can't gauge a team's performance off a 1-0 win against Burundi. They they have some really good players, Cameroon, and especially in the first half an hour, I thought they were the better side. They they had to score, though. I mean, they they looked really good in transition, especially. They have lightning quick pace. Eric Dupamoting is on fire at the minute for Bayern Munich. He has 10 goals. He's there. Obviously, he, he started as Cameroon centre-forward. They've talked about Cambi as well from Leon, who's electric. They have some solid, solid players. Gino Nana didn't start in the midfield, but Sam Gray did. And, and, and of course, Napoli's Frank Zambo and Guisa providing such energy in that, that midfield. They were really good, though. But then the second half started, and I feel they either ran out of energy or, or Switzerland maybe changed things tactically. Talk to me about the, the game overall, then, and how, well, how it ended up 1-0 through, obviously, the, the, an excellent finish from Briel and Bolo. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you with Cameroon. I thought first half they were really good. They looked sharp. They were moving the ball around nicely. They got players in the right areas. Like you said, Toko Akombi, um, uh, Frank Zambo and Gisa, absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. So lots of chances, lots of positives there. Second half, they dropped off. They lost their energy. They looked a bit flat. So that's really where they went They went wrong. But for Switzerland's point of view... It was it was almost a polar opposite. You know, they were a bit flat in the first half. They were they did have some chances and they did move the ball around nicely, but never really looked like scoring. Um, but second half, what what they did was to push more numbers up, up the field. And it sounds really simple to do, but it, it's a whole change of mentality. They stopped being 
so defensive and looking to protect the goal. And it started to push, you know, every time they went forward, they had four or five players going up the pitch. So that meant that a bit like Canada, they could move the ball around with speed and, and you know, their goal came from really nice, incisive play. Rodriguez involved, Freuler involved, and obviously Mbolo finished it off. And it was just a case of getting the right players in the right areas and ensuring that they had the opportunity there to, uh, you know, to use the spaces, which in the first half it didn't because it didn't have that many, that many players up there. So it was that kind of that small tactical change to be a bit more attacking, push players up the pitch, up the pitch. And, um, you know, that that really was what made the difference. And that they continued with that in the second half. And, and that's why I think they finished the, the game better. Um, so they'll be happy with the win, obviously. Um, Cameroon, I think, can be happy with elements of their performance. But Switzerland, I think they, they will have known that was a potential banana skin. Um, so, you know, it, it was a result. It, it was a match that they really, really needed to win. Um, and they did. So it, it gives them hope. Cameroon can have hope. And as I said, they played very well um, in bits. So, yeah, it really came down to that that small change for me. And even when you said there about they piled more men forward, I even think when they were in the force half, when they were trying to build through Cameroon's mid to low block, so many players were coming short to the ball. I remember once, I think it was Jaden Shakiri dropped um, near like where a right back would go, almost like an auxiliary right back, and Jacka was dropping extremely deep. And I understand it was kind of the same problem that Croatia had yesterday. Um, Luka Modric was coming incredibly deep to help progress play, and he's great at that. And he and he he did help Croatia, but you would like them to be further up the pitch where they can receive between the lines. And we see that this season with at Arsenal, especially with Jacka. For you know, I, I remember at the start of the season, people were really critical before the Crystal Palace game of Mikel Arteta putting Jacka as a left-sided central midfielder, pushing him up into the half space as almost between the lines as an eight. But it, you know, he, he's done incredibly there since since. Arteta has done that and they were still at the top of the league and they're, they're cruising at the minute and yet against Switzerland or for Switzerland sorry against Cameroon today he was really deep trying to pick the ball up and he's good at that I mean he's played that role for several years but when you watch what he's done for Arsenal you would think if we push him further forward we can get him between the lines get him creating chances like Shaqiri or whoever else in the end ultimately Switzerland did score it was a really nice goal as well and Bola's finish was, was excellent and he thumped it home 1-0, Cameroon, unfortunately, now will have to pick up points against Brazil and so a really stacked Serbia side. I mean, Serbia yeah. have an excellent, excellent team and we'll talk about Serbia tomorrow, of course, but they play Brazil later, which is a game, which is probably the game I was looking forward to the most this week. Um, but yeah, it's going to be really difficult for Cameroon now to get out of this group because I don't think they have any hope against Brazil or Serbia. I think this was their chance to pick up three points. And I really yeah, thought I they agree. were going to the first half an hour. I mean, again, as we said, they, their transitions were lightning quick. Switzerland couldn't deal with the pace. It was really, really good. They didn't score. Switzerland scored 1-0. Game over. We'll move on now to the final game we're going to preview, which is the game that just ended between Uruguay and South Korea. It was goalless. But I thought, I thought there was many moments of the game that were very dull, but there were some. But when it when it lit up, it was electric. Especially the last, I think, extra time or added time. Sorry, at the end of the ninety, it was fascinating. Valverde rocketed the post from must have been 25, 30 yards out. I really thought he scored. I nearly jumped out of me, me see. 
Um, and then so Korea went up the other end and had a great opportunity too. I was disappointed with Uruguay and their attacking play because defensively they were really good, but defensively under Oscar Tabarez for 14 odd years, they were excellent anyway. Diego Alonso is now in charge and there was a promise that they'd play more attacking football and they had some attack, they, some really good players in the pitch, obviously Palistri, who has made more World Cup appearances than appearances for Manchester United, which is mind-blowing. But of course, Darwin Nunes, who had an excellent chance at the force half too, and, and Uruguay is probably one of our best ever players, Luis Suarez up front. They, they were mainly hitting balls into the channels for Nunes, and then they had switches of play for Jimenez, especially to Valverde. Now, they were, they were really good, especially Valverde had one great half chance, I'll say, where he latched onto a ball in behind from Jimenez, and he took it down, left foot just went over the bar. But they struggled to break down South Korea for large parts of the game. Why do you think that was? It was two different styles of play. It was effectively both sides cancelled each other out, which is probably why it ended in, in a nil-nil. Mm. You know, you had Uruguay, who I thought some of their attack was quite good. I mean, their system was a 4-3-3, which I thought actually gave them a bit of balance. You know, defensively gave them the potential to play with a low block. You could, play, you could move that midfield three back to create 4-3, and, and, you know, that was what they did in parts. But it also meant, and I thought... The, the two outside midfielders in that three, Vecino uh, yeah, and Valverde, mm-hmm. both, I think what their task was when they had the ball was to get forward. Um, and, and certainly, like you said, they were putting a lot of focus on the wide channels um, because, you know, you had Nunes and Blistri, uh, who both are very capable of running and, and both have lots of pace. Suarez in the middle, with the best one in the world, he's still got his striker's boots on but he's not as quick as he was. So I think the idea was that Suarez wouldn't run so much. and Instead, they would focus on moving the ball out to the wings, using those four players, Vecino, Valverde, Nunes and Palistri, um, to receive the ball and then move it into the middle. That was kind of, I think, what the fundamental idea of their play was. And and certainly in, in the first 30 minutes, Vecino had the most touches um, between, the, between South Korea's defensive midfield lines. Valverde, we saw her getting into some dangerous positions. So tactically, it did work in parts, but they were lacking in that final end product. You know, like you said, Nunes having a couple of efforts, Valverde hitting the crossbar. They weren't close. They just couldn't quite finish it off. It was lack of composure at times. It was bad luck at times with Valverde hitting the crossbar. That was a brilliant shot. Um, yeah, so I think attack-wise, it was it was that. But yeah, going back to, to why it ended 0-0, as I said, two different styles of play. Uruguay playing this slightly more attacking style of play. South Korea sitting back, you know, they they didn't press. They sat back. It was it was a very clear 4-4-2 when they were out of possession, getting back all back into their own half. Um, they didn't, didn't want to win the ball. All they wanted to do really was to sit between the ball and, uh, and the goal. And, um, you know, it, it worked. So... That that for me was why it ended nil nil. Um, it, yeah, two different styles of play. They cancelled each other out. I think Uruguay dealt with Socorro's transitions a lot, though, and that's a testament, especially to Diego Godin, who was thirty five. I couldn't believe he. I, I would see him at another World Cup. He's thirty five, thirty six now. Um, him and as a course, and the ever present uh, Casares at the back, which. He, when when they would have the ball, he would drop in as a, a toward central defender, and then they'd go with three one Bentancur as the six and create that kind of diamond against South Korea. South Korea, obviously, of course, as you said, but sit deep. They were looking to hit them 
in transition with lightning quick players, especially Youngman Son. I mean, you, you see what he does for Spurs. It, it's when he has space to run into, that's when he's dangerous. Um, I was impressed enough with their defensive display. I think Uruguay had a couple of chances in the first half where, as we said, they went very direct. They were trying to hit those channels, hit those diagonal balls, which are dangerous. Once South Korea got the grip of that, I think they were okay. They, they started recognising that that's what Uruguay wanted to, to do. I want to give a massive shout out, especially to uh, Kim Min Jae, who, of course, has replaced Koulibaly and Napoli. What a replacement he's been. I mean, he's been amazing for Napoli this season. I thought today, especially on the ball, when South Korea were struggling in an actual, when they had actual settled possession against Uruguay's defensive block, they'd give the ball to him and he would just, he wouldn't even like play a progressive pass. He would smash it at the player, but he'd reach the player. The, the passing was so crisp. As a progressive passing centre half, he's he's wonderful. And I can see why more top clubs around Europe are linked with him. I know Manchester United have been linked as well in the past, but I mean, who haven't they been linked to? He really is a good defender though. And as I said, Sokri, I thought, struggled in their overall possession of the ball. They had many, I mean, the ball was played around the back line quite a lot and the goalkeeper, and then inevitably he would go long and Uruguay would eat it out of the air because that's where Godi and Jimenez and, and Casares excel. I do want to touch on one quick thing. I watched the game on Fox Sports legally. No, but I did watch the game on Fox Sports. Landon Donovan was the co-commentator. He was excellent. He was really, really excellent. He provided so much analysis. Of course, he's only recently retired in the last couple of years, but he's been at several World Cups. I believe he's coaching now, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong on that. But he was really, really good. Commentators have been something that have been criticised quite a lot at this World Cup. I think it's fair to say. I think, especially at the Euros, they were criticised, but now more so. It's almost as if we're shining more light on them than ever. You can really tell, and I want to get your take on this, you can really tell when there's, I suppose, the commentators who kind of just show up with very little knowledge of the, the teams and the game just to make up numbers to commentate on a match and those who are genuinely trying to educate the listeners. Give me your take then on, I suppose, the, 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 the evolving role of commentators at sport because no longer are people as willing to accept, and I'm not going to name any names because I don't want to be disrespectful to anyone, I'm, I'm sure you can all figure out what I'm just talking about for the most part. But yeah, I, I think people have been more less tolerant of just nonsensical commentary, you know, especially at this World Cup where this game's so thick and fast and there's so many different commentators. Yeah, um, I'm completely with you. I am, I'm a fan of people who know what they're doing. So ex-players like, say, Alan Shearer, who does know his stuff, if he was to do co-commentary, which he doesn't obviously do because of all the studio stuff. But if he was to do it, he'd be someone I'd listen to. But then you get some, again, I won't name names, but you, you get some who clearly haven't necessarily got as much knowledge, shall we say, and it shows. And I one, one of the things that I have, and it's not just in football, it's across other sports too, is when you have current players who come on. And again, some are brilliant, some aren't. Um, but you can tell those that have come on and effectively being asked would you like to come and do some commentary and just talk and some have come on and said you're going to be the co-commentator can you do some preparation research you know and some of them will come on and all they'll do is just tell you what's happened yeah and it'll be like you know saying for example or someone's just taking a shot at goal and they say yeah nice and tight 
well, anyone could tell you that. We've just watched it. What I like to see is the, the main commentator telling you what's happening. So players' names and, and things like that. And the co-commentator coming in and telling you how, why, anything tactically or anything like that. So sort of filling in the bits that the commentator doesn't do. Obviously, we've got that issue with the fact that you've got the co-commentator. If they do all the analysis, the studio's got nothing to talk about at half time because or full time because it's already already been done. So there is that balance between giving some analysis, but not giving so much that you basically steal what your, what your colleagues are going to talk about. But you can tell when you get those those people who come on who all they do is just basically tell you what either the commentators just said yeah. or. You know, they don't tell you anything. And it brings up a wider point about, I remember Eddie Howe made a comment a couple of weeks ago, which went viral on, on social media. And he said, commentators can skew the perspective of people watching. So when you, it's almost like when you're watching something, if you're not thinking about something, the commentator says it and you, go, you just, you think that thought then almost, and you're watching it and going, oh yeah, okay. So uh, the reason I watched, I didn't watch the game on, but I can easily watch every game, but I didn't watch it on Irish TV or on the BBC or ITV, sorry, it was because I've just, I've just been kind of underwhelmed with some of the, 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 the co-commentators and the punditry. So I wanted to get a different perspective. And of course I went on Fox and London Donovan was exceptional, but I think Eddie Howe does make a good point because the other day I was watching the Mexico Poland game. I thought Poland were pretty decent defensively. And oh my God, the, the commentator would have, you would have thought they were losing 7 0. You know, it, it ended goalless. They didn't give that many chances away, but defensively they were solid, but they were just constantly uh, slating the Polish setup and the Polish backline. And again, that does skew your point of view because people will walk away going, oh yeah, Poland were terrible. It's not really the case. I think going forward, yeah, obviously we spoke about that and they, they weren't great, but defensively I thought they were solid. and as you said, it's very clear to see the lack of preparation from some commentators, co-commentators or, or, or pundits. And I think people are less accepting. And I only bring up this point because obviously our goal at TFA is to provide listeners and readers with the best analysis. We don't just come on and write, write match reports, which we could do. And I'm not saying there's a problem with writing match reports. Of course, there's not. But, we, you know, there's a million match reports in every game. We don't just come here to do that. We want to provide you with analysis you haven't got anywhere else and I ultimately think that is also the role of the co-commentator the pundits and I think and I'm not just saying about the, those that are showing the games live right now at the World Cup I'm also talking about massive networks in you know that show Champions League games in particular you know I, I just think they I just think they really need to up their game is basically my, my, my final point would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. And, and you know, sometimes big, big companies, stations, broadcasters, they sometimes go for the star names, even though they aren't the best players, or the, sorry, the, aren't the best um, commentators. You, you can, it's a bit like coaching. You can be the best player in the world. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the best coach in the world. Mm-hmm. The best coach in the world is probably someone who's barely played the game or, you know, like Eddie Howe, for example, you know, one of the, one of the best managers in the world at the moment. I think most people probably agree with the way the way Newcastle have sorted themselves out and are playing some brilliant football. I don't think he played too many uh, matches at a reasonable. Yeah. I mean, he played for Bournemouth, obviously, but I think that was about as high up the pyramids as he got, and and that was in sort of League Two, I think, mm-hmm. or, or National League. 
you know, so you can be the best player in the world, but not the best coach and vice versa. And the same goes for commentators. I mean, I was listening to Andros Townsend this morning doing a Switzerland um, yeah. uh, Cameroon. Uh, yeah. 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 And I've lost so many teams of players. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, and I thought he was brilliant. I mean, I've, I was looking on Twitter and quite a few people were saying Andros Townsend's not great, you know, turning him off and all that stuff. I actually thought he was really good. Mm-hmm. I thought he was insightful with his, his comments. You could tell he knew all about the Cameroon team. He said he'd watched their last uh, friendly yeah. and he was bringing bits that, from that yeah. and saying, well, they did that in that game and it's not surprising that, that players come on at that point. And you could tell actually he knew his stuff. So And he was it, quite funny not, as well. He, he it was very stuff. funny and he had some good stories to tell. So it was not always the case that you get current players mm-hmm. who are just coming on basically to have a bit of a banter. Some of them do come on and know that they are genuinely there to work, which they are. In the day, this is this is a job. It's not just a you know conversation between two friends that happens to be on TV. They're there to do a job, which is to provide the viewers with a, a blow by blow um, running order, if you like, of of what's happening on the pitch, but also what's happening and why it's happening and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, like you said, at TFA, we're hope- what we want to do is obviously to provide listeners readers with that tactical mm-hmm. breakdown if you like um which i hope we are doing and and you know that's that's what i think it needs to be more of because ultimately match reports are as you said there's about a million of them per game and the fact is everyone knows what's just happened there's no point reading a match report because you know you've just watched the game all you're going to do in a match report is yeah. what you effectively watch it again or yeah. read through it again so tactical analysis really is you know, as as the commentator does, that's the key bit because that's what you're not going to get from the game necessarily. And yeah, I think we're all guilty of um, giving stuff that that viewers will then take on board, us included. You know, we'll make comments on here mm-hmm. or in our articles. People will go, oh, well, clearly that player did really well. Well, at the end of the day, it's just our opinions. Yeah. It's what we've seen. It's our interpretation. Likewise, it's the commentator's interpretation, but you know, play, uh, viewers are very obviously very capable of making their own opinions. So just because we say someone's played badly or wrong or something's not worked, doesn't mean they did. It just means that's what we've thought. So, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, we do try back it up with as much analysis and data as we can. And as you said about managers, Jose Mourinho, Jurgen Klopp, Thomas Tuchel, Mauricio Sarri was a banker. These guys didn't play at the top level, but they are top top coaches. And yeah. you almost see. And again, I'm not naming names, but I really want to, but I'm not going to. He said in the past things like, you know, what have you won in the game when someone's criticised them on his punditry? While in the, you know, the gantry with him, or not the gantry, sorry, in the studio with him. And I mean, at the end of the day, just because you're a great player doesn't mean you're a great pundit. And it, I think especially the younger generations are becoming more tolerant of that, that there are some excellent analysts out there, especially on things like Twitter. You know, and I'm not trying to brag, but I think at TFA, we do a great job too. You'll get some amazing analysis that you can't get, or that you should probably be able to get on TV, but you you ultimately can't. But we'll wrap it up there. David, David, thank you so much for joining me today. This is is actually a great chat. To all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed too. And make sure to tune in tomorrow as we tactically review the games between Portugal and Ghana, Brazil and Serbia, Wales, Iran, and Qatar and Senegal. Goodbye for now.